an initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Here's what I'm going to do. I'll first talk about the assumptions from Revelation. Then I'll say a little bit about love, what I think love in general is like. What is it to love somebody? Um, and then I will specify what is romantic love. How does it differ from other kinds of love? And then I will talk about sexual union as a consummation of romantic life and the openness to life and commitment that sexual, with which sexual union consummates romantic love. So my first assumption from Revelation is that we have a duty to love everyone and that that duty includes all of morality under it. Any genuine moral duty can be derived by analyzing the nature of love and examining ourselves and the world to see what, how, what kind of love is appropriate. Both parts of this examination are needed. If we didn't analyze the nature of love, we might erroneously think that we can do evil to others so that a greater good might come of it. And we might think we're acting out of love for those who will get the greater good. But a proper love analysis of love will say that love is focused on particular actions and to do evil to someone is contrary to love, even if the love is done for the sake of a greater good to other people that we love. And if we do not examine ourselves and the world, we may harm our neighbor out of ignorance while trying lovingly to promote our neighbor's good because we don't know what benefits our neighbor and what doesn't. So the first assumption is that love is basically, as Paul says, the fulfillment of the law. The second is that all forms of love, for instance, things like romantic love, children's love for parents, parents' love for children, love for friends, love for colleagues, love for siblings, love for neighbor, love for enemy, all of these are forms of the very same thing, namely love, or as the Greek scriptures have it, agape. I, as both a linguistic and a theological fact, I don't think agape is any kind of distinctive special form of love besides the romantic filial and so on. The word agape has about the same range of meanings in biblical Greek as love does in English, maybe even more. There are cases where things get described as agape where I think they're, they're, maybe it's more like lust than like love in the Old Testament at times. I mean, the word is just a very broad word, just like the English word love. That's all I mean here. It's not a special kind of love. Our love for God, God's love for us, and the love we should have for neighbor are routinely referred to as agape. But so is the love between spouses. And, and even in the Song of Songs, the Greek translation constantly uses the language of agape for what are clearly very sexual contexts. Even at one point, the love for the best seats in the synagogue, the word for love is agape. Biblical Greek just does not distinguish agape from other loves. Almost all the time, in the New Testament, agape is used interchangeably with philia. So I think the scriptures present us with the idea that all the forms of love are unified as being forms of love or agape. So romantic love is not something different from love. It's a kind of love. The third assumption is that romantic love, and I'll say more in favor of it, I think, later, is consummated through a sexual union as one flesh. 
This union is primarily biological rather than psychological in nature. St. Paul talks of a union as one body between a man and a prostitute. And surely there need be no psychological unity between a man and a prostitute. There could be, but I would assume that's the more rare case. And my final assumption from Revelation is that, and it doesn't, unlike the other things, it's not tied to particular texts, it's just tied to the spirit of Genesis and the first chapters of Genesis, is the idea that romantic love is natural to human beings. It's not a mere creation of a particular culture. So some kinds of love are creations of a particular culture. There's a special comradeship which firemen have for one another. If society didn't create firemen, that kind of love wouldn't exist. But romantic love isn't like that. Romantic love is expressed differently in different cultures, but it satisfies a yearning to cleave to another that is a normal part of human life. Okay, <clears throat> so let me move to the first part, which is what is love and what are the forms of love? I think there are three closely intertwined aspects to every kind of love, every form of love. Appreciation, benevolence, namely willing a good thing to the person one loves, and a striving for union. Appreciation, benevolence, and union, or striving for union. This is controversial. The theologian Anders Nygren has famously argued that we have to distinguish agape from eros. In eros, he said, we seek reciprocation. We want to be loved back. Reciprocation is obviously central to unitive aspects of love. But he said agape is selfless. In agape, you don't want reciprocation. You just want to give and give and give. Now, on theological grounds, Nigren's claim is just false. God's agape for us, as exhibited in the scriptures, is exhibited largely through his giving us the grace to reciprocate his love. That is what his love for us is. It is a love that allows reciprocation. I think we can also argue philosophically for the need for the three aspects of love to be interconnected when it's a love between creatures, even leaving God out of this question. If I don't appreciate the person I love, my benevolence is likely to degenerate into a proud and superior philanthropic attitude. Yeah, you are poor, I'm going to help you. I have stuff, I can do stuff for you. Likewise, so if I, likewise, if I just will the other person's good in a benevolent way, but I don't appreciate the other person, that's not love. And what kind of a reason could I have for pursuing union with another person if I did not see the other as having a value? Socrates argues in this symposium, I think correctly, that being united with someone or something is only worth doing if the someone or something is good. So union requires appreciation, and there's no love without appreciation. So both, I think, benevolence and union require appreciation if they're going to be proper. Likewise, love needs union. It, it, this is something that I think uh, Benedict XVI in his encyclical on love talks about, though my interpretation might be wrong. It can be demeaning to be the recipient of someone's mere benevolence to be served by charity. C.S. Lewis writes, 
Spiteful people will pretend to be loving us with charity precisely because they know it will wound us, right? So they're sort of implicating, uh, there's nothing to love about you, but I have this Christian duty, and so I will love you out of my Christian duty. That's better than hating them, but it's, it's, it, there's something demeaning about this. One way to protect the recipient uh, uh, of charity from being shamed is for the recipient to be like the beggar of Jewish humor. The Jewish humor has this character, the schnorrer, the, beg the beggar. Here's a typical story. Uh, the schnorrer has a regular benefactor who gives him money regularly, and now the benefactor is in bankruptcy. And so all of the benefactor's uh, creditors are coming around saying, well, I want my 10 cents on the dollar, if that's all you can give. And along comes the beggar saying, I want my 10 cents on the dollar. This is a way of sort of seeing charity as something that is owed to you. And then you don't feel demeaned. The, the schnorrer of Jewish uh, stories, he actually feels like he's doing a service to the benefactor. I'm providing you an opportunity to do your duty, to fulfill the biblical commands of almsgiving. And that's not the right attitude. That's taking gifts for granted. It does protect you from being demeaned, but it demeans the giver in, instead. <coughs> So it's not a solution to the problem. But on the other hand, if the benefactor not only gives good things to somebody else, but seeks union with them, then the benefactor is on a more equal plane. The benefactor becomes vulnerable to rejection by the beloved. There's no shame in receiving gifts from a lover who wants to be united with one. Lovers' gifts are very different from cold, uh, from cold charity and beneficence. And if I want union with my benefactor in turn, I certainly do not take the benefactor's gifts for granted. I'm grateful for them as an expression of the benefactor's love and desire for union with me. So uh, beneficence without a desire for union leads to coldness. Likewise, an appreciation of the, of the other person without a pursuit of union would be impoverished. If I have no desire to possess someone I love, to be joined with someone I love in, in some way, in whatever way is appropriate, then do I really fully appreciate them? It seems that appreciation naturally flows into a desire for possession and union of some sort. And of course, if we pursue union, on the other hand, and appreciate the other, but don't seek the other's good, we do not have love, but a self-defeating selfishness. Genuine union with another person involves pursuit of the other's goals. And an appreciation of goods is incomplete when it doesn't motivate us to further those goods. And it is only if, with a mixture of humility and surprised joy, we see our being united with another person as good for that other person as well, that we can hope that the other will fully be, and not merely by being deceived by us, say, be joined to us. So all the forms of love exhibit the three aspects, union, beneficence, and appreciation, but in different ways. But the differences are different in the case of the aspects. In respect to benevolence, there's actually not that much difference between the different forms of love, I think. We will the good to people we love romantically, to people who's, who, whom we love filially, fraternally, f in a friendly way, in, 
In all these cases, we will the good to them. And it is possible to will many of the very same goods in all of these cases. And in each case, it is possible to give up one's life for the other. I mean, you might think, yeah, th aren't there some goods that you can't will to other people? Like you might think, it's only in a, in a marital relationship that you can will the other's sexual good, maybe. But that's false. There are plenty of relationships where you can will someone's sexual good. Parents can will their children's sexual good by bringing them up well. Doctors can will a sexual good by treating patients who have sexual problems. Um, benefactors uh, can will the sexual good of people by giving them money to go out on a date with someone they love. There are a lot, right? There, there is, in regard to benevolence, the forms of love are, I think, not that different in terms of the kinds of goods that are willed. There's more differentiation in appreciation, but even there the differences are, are not that radical. One can appreciate the beauty of one's romantic beloved's face, but one can also appreciate the beauty of one's father's face. I think the best way to differentiate the forms of love is by looking at the kind of union that they drive one to. But first I'm going to need a distinction from Aquinas between the two types of union, formal and real. Now these terms are rather deceptive to a contemporary ear. Formal union is quite real and always present in love, while real union may only be something to be aspired to, on Aquinas' view. But let's give him his terms. Formal union is the union of mind and will implied by the fact that one loves someone. This consists, Aquinas says, in an indwelling of lover and beloved and beloved and lover that is mutual even if the love is unreciprocated. That's strange that there's sort of a mutual union even if the love is unreciprocated. Here's what, how Aquinas thinks this works. The lover enters the beloved by intellect because the lover tries to understand the person he or she loves from the inside, seeing the beloved's goals and nature from the beloved's own point of view. In love, this understanding of the other, sort of this thorough understanding of the other as from the inside leads to willing the other's good. And not just the abstract good of the other, as, say, a human being, but the other's particular good, as it is found in the particular goals and vocation that the other is pursuing. The beloved, so the lover is sort of in the beloved in, under, in intellect and will. But the beloved also comes to lie in the lover's mind, because the lover thinks about the beloved constantly, says Aquinas. But at the same time, the lover is also in the beloved, because as Aquinas says, the lover is not satisfied with a superficial apprehension of the beloved, but strives to gain an intimate knowledge of everything pertaining to the beloved, so as to penetrate into his very soul. In the lover's will, on the other hand, goods and bad things, good and bad things happening to beloved, get treated as if they were happening to the lover. If I love someone and something bad happens to them, I treat it as if it happened to me. And my beloved's will is as if it were my own. Thus it is as if the beloved were in the lover by means, sorry, by means of will. The lover acts for the sake of the beloved, as if the beloved were him or herself. And so the beloved comes to be in the lover. Hence, simply by loving someone, one dwells inside the person, in intellect, by understanding, and in will, and the beloved comes to be present in one's intellect and will. 
So there are actually like four kinds of union in every kind of love. And when the love is reciprocated, they double to eight. So this formal union is always present in love. Because if you don't understand, if you're not striving to understand the person from the inside, or you're not striving to will their good, you know, you're not doing these things, you're not really loving. But there's a further union to which love calls us. And Aquinas calls this real union. Real union is a way of being together with the other person, not, just, not necessarily just in mind and will. This may involve all sorts of things, intellectual conversation, hugging, writing an article together, caring for another physically, uniting sexually, changing diapers, etc. Love can exist without real union. Lovers can find themselves separated or can find their love unreciprocated in such a way that the union they seek is impossible. I may really want to write a paper with some colleague, but he just looks down on my work and would just never want to write a paper with me. That love is going to be unreciprocated. That real union of co-authorship co is then going to be unavailable to me. And if I'm a good lover, I'm not going to force myself on him. I'm not going to pressure him to, to write this paper with me. So love, there's a seeking for real union, but there doesn't have to be a fact of real union. But one doesn't seek just any real union. One seeks a real union appropriate for and expressive of the form of love. With a colleague, this union may be an intellectual conversation, but not probably with an infant. At least that's what I wrote, and then today I was reading in the New York Times about how important it is to talk to infants and how it's really crucial to their intellectual development. So maybe I'll take back that intellectual conversation with an infant is not the right form of union. But let's say mutual intellectual conversation with an infant is not. Um, what I wrote was one unites with an infant by hugging, but usually not so with a stranger. What differentiates the forms of love is not so much the benevolent or appreciative aspects, nor even the formal union, but the kinds of real union that the relationship calls for. I think we can even think of certain kinds of real union as paradigmatic for the form of love and as consummating it. Um, I kind of think of co-authorship as consummating being a colleague of somebody. Um, intercourse consummates uh, mar marital love. Giving up one's life maybe for another, maybe consummates love for a neighbor. It is important that our love for people have a form that is appropriate to the beloved, to the lover, and to the relationship. It would be inappropriate to love an adult child with the form of love that one has for an infant. That would be a distortion. It's a distortion that does, in fact, occur. We all understand the sad reality that Pio can love others in the wrong way. And that creates a problem for an ethics of love. If doing the right thing is simply acting in accordance with love, how could one love in the wrong way? If the sum total of morality is found in love, the answer to this question has to be grounded in demand that love itself makes. This demand, I think, is that love itself demands that love take a form that is appropriate to the lover, to the beloved, and the relationship. This is the way in which love is responsive to reality. Love needs to have a form that fits the reality of the situation. And this suggests to me that the forms of love, while we can 
delineate broad categories like romantic, filial, friendship, have subforms, such as the exact kind of filial love appropriate between a mother of such and such interests and proclivities and such and such a child of such and such an age. In love, we need to sensitively discern the situation and understand the persons involved and make the form of love or the subform be appropriate to that. Love is not only open to changes of form, but it actively seeks to ensure that its form of love always fits the people and their relationship. This flexible dynamism on the part of love is what allows for commitment. It would not be appropriate to promise an unchanging love to a changing human being. The form of love appropriate between two young and healthy newlyweds and expressed through a companionship that is both sexual and intellectual and emotional needs to be different from the form of love expressed by an elderly person changing the soiled underclothes of a bedridden spouse. Yet, there is a continuity. The couple hasn't lost their love at all, but their romantic love has matured to a different subform of marital love. So love has specific forms, and it's important to get the form right. Now I want to move to one specific form, romantic or erotic love. And by implication, marital love, which I think is sort of like a matured version of this, or a, full, a fuller version of this. How is romantic love distinguished from other forms of love? Well, like all the other forms of agape, romantic love includes an appreciation of the other, a willingness to do good things for the other, a formal union, and a tendency to a real union. The difference is going to lie in the kind of real union involved. Now, couples who are romantically in love with each other talk with one another, share their feelings, have meals together, go to movies together, hold hands, and so on. Yet no one of these activi unitive activities that I listed defines romantic love, since they can each be present in other forms of love. One can appropriately hold one's child's hand, go to movies with one's brother, have a meal with a homeless stranger, share one's feelings with a friend, and talk with a colleague. Or even do all of the above with one's child. Could it be that a combination of these and other activities constitutes the real union that romantic love is directed towards? I don't think so. Here's one reason. Some of these activities I gave that are sort of paradigmatic uh, of romantic love are associated with romantic love not intrinsically, not universally, but only in our culture. Obviously, it is not intrinsic to romantic love to go to movies together, or else, or else we have to say humanity for 100,000 years was pining for movies. <laughs> People, you know, the cavemen just felt like our romantic love is unfulfilled because we can't go to the movies, right? Likewise, that holding hands, while it was always possible, is an appropriate expression of affection, is also culturally defined. But romantic love is one of the basic and natural forms of love. That was one of my assumptions. While some of its expressions are culturally defined, romantic love goes beyond culture. So we don't want to have culturally dependent things as defining the essence of romantic love. One might try to allow for some variation in the expression of romantic love by defining romantic love in terms of the kinds of real union that are culturally appropriate. Well, but culturally appropriate to what? To romantic love. So at last, that goes into a circle. 
Moreover, I think the suggestion I was exploring neglects the physicality involved in romantic love. While in other loves, such as parental love for an infant, there may be physical interaction, there may even be more physical interaction than in romantic love, in romantic love there's a particularly significant component where one appreciates the other as a physical being, a person of body and soul. Now that by itself doesn't differentiate romantic love from other things. Admiration for an athlete involves appreciation of the other as a physical being. But in romantic love, the other is appreciated not just as a physical being, but as a sexual being. Maybe that's what makes for romantic love. I'm just sort of trying different things. Maybe it's the appreciation of the other as a sexual being. Um, no. Here's why not. Think of the scientist who studies nudibranchs, shellless, hermaphroditic marine mollusks. The scientist is taken with the physical beauty of the nudibranch the orange frilly underside and glowing purplish body of the Spanish shawl. You can Google the Spanish shawl. It's, beautiful. it's a beautiful creature of God. But more than that, our scientist deeply appreciates, in a scientific way, the intricate hermaphroditic reproductive system of the nudibranch. He appreciates, or she appreciates the nudibranchs as a sexual being. But that's not romantic love. Or at least it need not. Similarly, if a scientist is in charge of setting up a moon colony, she may appreciate a particular candidate of either sex as a sexual being who is likely to promote the procreative goals of the colony. Might not want to choose somebody who is infertile. But that too is not romantic love. Not only the romantic beloved must be appreciated as a sexual being, but the appreciation needs to be sexual in nature. The scientist's appreciation is not sexual in nature, and the colony leader's appreciation is not sexual in nature, though they appreciate the sexual aspects of the other. What does it mean for the appreciation to be sexual in nature? Could it be that it means there's sexual arousal during it? Surely not. Sexual arousal can occur in non-sexual contexts. It's just a physiological reaction. And I think there can be sexual appreciation without arousal. That's presumably part of the point of things like Viagra, is to make po arousal possible when there is sexual appreciation without the arousal. I want to make the following suggestion. A romantic lover appreciates the beloved in an essentially first-person way that could, be in a, that could be, though inadequately expressed in words like, I appreciate this person as someone with whom it would be eventually good for me to unite sexually not just for somebody, like the colony leader might think. If so, then we simultaneously get an answer to the question of what differentiates romantic appreciation from other forms of appreciation and what the real union in romantic love is. In both cases, it is sexual union. There's a focus on sexual union. The lovers yearn for this, and they appreciate the other as capable of it with oneself in an appropriate way. Parenthood, you might think, this implies the modern Western dating practices uh, on other campuses that are directly focused on sex must be the right thing, because romantic love is all about sex, it sounds like, from what I've just said. Well, maybe not. For it may be that sexual union calls for more than just sex. Maybe it calls for marital sex. And that's not what those dating practices are about. But now we have this question. So we, we got sort of... Uh, what differentiates romantic love is that there's some kind of connection to sexual union. But what is this sexual union? 
Well, sex is going to be a crucial part of the story. But why should sex, this organ meeting with that organ in that way, help fulfill the yearnings of a basic form of love? I mean, it's sort of weird. Why why should this bit of uh, flesh, touching that bit of flesh in that way, have anything to do with love? Presumably, the real union in a basic form of love has to be something non-trivial, something significant. We don't have any basic natural form of love that is consummated by tracing a circle on the back of the other person's hand. So what aspect of sex gives sex the kind of significance that makes it a fit way for mature romantic love to unite? Is it because it's pleasant? Is it because it produces emotional closeness? Physical contact? Reproduction? Well, pleasure and emotional closeness can be had in entirely unromantic and non-sexual contexts. Nor is sexual pleasure or the emotional closeness that results from sex necessarily always more intense than other pleasures or other kinds of closeness. Other kinds of closeness and pleasure may be more intense. A particular instance of sex might be either more or less intensely pleasurable than a particular instance of intellectual conversation or even a particular instance of eating cake together. Likewise, the emotional uh, closeness that can result from sex need not be greater than other instances of emotional closeness. It might be sometimes, at other times it might not be. And while the lovers might sometimes be disappointed if reproduction doesn't occur, their sexual union still has uh, significance without reproduction there still seems to be a real union for which the lovers yearned. So if there's a connection to reproduction, it cannot be a simple one. What if about the suggestion is physical contact? Well, if we say that physical contact is what makes sex be the right kind of real union for romantic relationships, we're being too vaguely euphemistic to be helpful. Physical contact occurs in all kinds of activities. Wrestlers wrestle, Siblings hug, good Samaritans carry the wounded, and so on. That something like physical contact is important in sex seems exactly right. But what matters is the particular kind of contact. Well, what particular kind is that? Well, we could try to define it in terms of contact with body parts from a certain list. If you look at the Paula Jones and Bill Clinton stuff, the lawyers made up a very precise list of body parts and said sex is any contact uh, between this par- part on this list and a part on this list that involves sexual pleasure or any contact between this part and this part, whether it involves sexual pleasure or not. Um, it was very precise. But that's not right. For one, the doctor can make contact with any body part without that being sexual. We could say, well, okay, but it has to be for gratification of sexual desire or it has to involve arousal. Or maybe we could have a combination view on which certain kinds of contact counts as sex regardless of intention and certain ones count depending on intention. That was what they did in the Bill Clinton case. But any approaches that involve lists of organs are philosophically very unsatisfactory. For it doesn't answer the question, why should it matter to the lovers that these particular body parts on the list are involved? There's no significant real union in a woman's inserting a finger into a man's ear. Though, if done affectionately, the act might contribute to union. Why should there be any more significance in intercourse? Well, I want to step back. 
The problem is to explain why sexual, what sexual union is and why it matters. We do have a pretty clear intuition that when intercourse occurs in the right circumstances and for the right motivations between a man and a woman, then there is a real union as one flesh that lovers seek. You can pack whatever you like into right circumstances, like marriage and so on. So maybe we should think about not sex sort of in general, which is a sort of vague term in our culture, but specifically about intercourse and why it is significant. I mean, you know, this is sexual ethics. It may get somewhat graphic. Probably not very. One striking thing about intercourse between a man and a woman is that it involves not just a random pair of organs, in the way that a finger and an ear would be, but a matched and cooperating set of organs. And these organs are matched not simply for geometric reasons. It's not simply that one set fits geometrically with the other in the way that an ear and a finger of exactly the right size could perhaps fit. Rather, the sets of organs are functionally matched. They are organs that are working together in intercourse. But it only makes sense to talk of two systems working together when there's something that they are working for, a goal. What is this goal? Well, if we have to explain to a Martian which or, uh, organs are involved in intercourse, Martians see, you know, sees all sorts of uh, pornographic movies and wonders what's going on, and or may, maybe observes humans and um, and wants to know what's going on, and we want to explain intercourse. We have to tell the Martian which organs are involved. Well, I think what we're going to have to say to the Martian is that it's reproductive organs, and the goal of the mutual biological striving, I think, then, which is what defines the way in which these organs count as matches for each other, is reproduction. And here I'm, I do need to get slightly more graphic for a brief time. In intercourse, the vagina, which is a muscular, cylindrical organ surrounding cavity, elicits the ejaculation of potentially sperm-bearing semen from the male through frictional stimulation. What for? Well, the activity is typically pleasant for the man and also often for the woman. But if the organs were working together to produce pleasure, there would be just a coincidence that potentially sperm-bearing semen is being elicited into the female reproductive system. But that's no coincidence, right? That's the whole point. That's the biological point. Now, that is the biological point. That does not mean that it's the point the couple necessarily cares about most. It might even not be the case that's the point that they should care about most, but it is the biological point. What is happening in intercourse is human mating, right? There's a biological striving in the direction of reproduction. This striving occurs whether or not the couple endorses it, and it occurs even when reproduction is impossible due to temporary or permanent infertility. So intercourse, and we'll have more discussion of that with Pat Lee's comments, so intercourse is an activity of reproductive type. It's an instance of human mating. That's just how humans mate. And now it becomes a little clear why it should matter to the lovers. For there's a value in a bodily striving for a great end. And reproduction is a great end. It is the procreation of a new human person, a being in the image and likeness of God. This value is present in the biological activity of intercourse. And it is present even when the striving cannot be completed. One hasn't wasted one's time when playing a football game if one has lost. 
One might not even care about victory when one's playing. One might just want to play for the joy of the game. But there is a point to the game, and you wouldn't understand it as playing the game if you didn't pay some attention to the goal, like knowing which way to run. You need to know. An activity of reproductive type is not something trivial, whether it succeeds in reproduction or not. Moreover, we now see that the significance that intercourse between a man and a woman has is a significance that other sexual activities that they may engage in do not have. If what makes intercourse fitting is the physical aspect of the real union that romantic lovers yearn for is the cooperative functioning of the reproductive system, then these other activities do not yield that union because there is no cooperative functioning of the reproductive system. And a consequence of this is that no activity that a man and a man or a woman and a woman could do can fulfill the yearnings of romantic love, though they might think that they have fulfilled them. Let me try a somewhat different approach. Sexual union is a union as one flesh, one body. A union, scripture tells us this. What's this mean? Well, it seems to mean a union analogous to that which parts of a body have with one another. You know. Now, my heart is not united to the arteries merely by physical contact or even by the fact that this contact is permanent, right? If a doctor were fixing my heart, he wouldn't glue the arteries to the heart and say, oh, they're joined up. It's not the right kind of joining up. If we glue two cats together, they may be in permanent contact, but they're not living out a union as one body. Rather, I think what biologically unites the heart and the arteries is that they're cooperating together for the joint goal of oxygenating my body. And it's very plausible to understand the organic union of parts of a body biologically as a union defined by the parts working together for a common purpose. Well, if we see sexual union as a union as one body, we're going to see it as a cooperation for a common purpose. What is that striving purpose going to be? Well, it can't be something trivial, for then the sexual union would not be of deep importance. And I think the most plausible candidates for the purpose of this biological striving that unites the two bodies as one are pleasure, psychological unity, and reproduction. If we're talking of a very biological striving, if we're talking of one flesh, and the focus here is on the physicality, then it doesn't seem right to understand the common striving of the bodies in sexual union as being directed as psychological unity. In any case, this need not be the best way to produce psychological unity. It can produce psychological unity, but there are many other ways. What about pleasure? Well, pleasure is not something worthwhile on its own, I think. That's controversial, but I think it's true. It is good to take pleasure in something good. But when you take pleasure in something that is valueless of itself, that's an empty pleasure. That's directing our heart. When we experience pleasure, our heart is directed at something. It, it experiences something as good. But if it's not good, then we're deceiving ourselves. So pleasure where there is no good would be an empty pleasure. And the lovers are not united as one flesh by bodily striving for an empty pleasure. That just wouldn't have the kind of significance. So if it's pleasure that they're striving at, there has to be something else as well. So pleasure on its own can't be the answer. And that leaves reproduction which is what we got when I was thinking about intercourse and thinking how I would explain that to the alien. So the two bodies are united by common biological striving for reproduction, and that makes the persons be one flesh. 
So that is sort of the physical component. But of course, romantic lovers don't just want a biological union. A biological union does not do justice to them as embodied persons. It may be what dogs have, but it's not good enough for persons, beings of rational soul and body. Such beings yearn for a union that does justice to interpersonal love. The physical aspect of the union, which is constituted by the joint striving of the reproductive systems, needs to be in harmony with the attitudes of the two as persons. And I want to talk about two aspects of this harmony. The first aspect is, is this. If Martha is united to George through their body's joint reproductive striving in intercourse, but Martha and George fight against this reproductive striving by taking pills or putting barriers in between, then Martha and George are fighting against what unites them physically. Their bodies may still be united despite their best efforts, but because their wills are opposed to what their bodies are doing, neither of them is united as an integrated person. Martha is disunited from Martha's body and hence from herself. George is disunited from George's body and hence from himself. And because Martha was going to be united with George through their bodies, Martha is disunited from George. Now, it's not necessary for my integration as a person that I positively will everything my body does. Many of the things my body does are things that only doctors know about, and, many, and some are not even known to the doctors. But if I make an act of will against what my body does, then I do disunite myself from my body. And if I simultaneously try to unite with another through the very bodily activity that I am opposing, then I have disunited myself from the other person in disuniting myself from my body while in a kind of, sort of self-contradictory way trying to unite with them. So an act of intercourse, sexual intercourse, in order to help constitute the kind of romantic union that love seeks, which isn't merely biological but also involves the persons, has to be open to life. This is at least a negative condition. The couple should not do anything to oppose the reproductive striving. They cannot fight that which unites them if it's going to be an integrated, real union of persons. So this is sort of on the side of mechanics and intentions. Not just mechanics, but it's also intentions. They cannot direct their hearts against what their bodies are doing if they want to unite through their bodies. The second aspect has to do with time. The union of parts in an organism has a dimension of time. Typically, the major parts of an organism are united with one another for their lifetime. My heart had better last me a lifetime. Maybe we can occasionally you know, find transplants and things, but those are exceptional cases. There may be a few parts that we lose. So for instance, I, I take the controversial judgment that the placenta is a part of the fetus, and so it's a part that the fetus loses eventually. It's a part that's not needed after one is born. But most parts aren't like that. Most parts persist over a lifetime. So there's a temporal dimension that is needed to make intercourse more fully a union analogous to that of parts of one organism. Because if you just look at intercourse by itself, it only lasts a certain amount of time. Not anywhere close in or the order of magnitude to the lifetime of the organisms. So there needs to be a temporal dimension. Moreover, human persons exist through time. And their union as persons needs a, a temporal dimension. 
The brief act of intercourse can be, as it were, stretched through time by means of a uniquely personal act, an act of loving commitment, of a promise to one another. In this case, a loving commitment for life, indeed a marriage. There's sort of this idea that commitment is one of the things that makes us uniquely human is, is I think, a really powerful one. I got, I got it actually from Nietzsche. Nietzsche says, man became an interesting animal when he became capable of making promises. And Nietzsche's thought is, it, it's this amazing power that promises have where you can control your very own future actions. Normally, I can just will what I'm going to do now. I can have intentions for the future, but I could change my mind. But a promise takes away my right to change my mind. It lets me control sort of myself over time. That's an amazing power, and he th Nietzsche thinks that's what gave rise to sort of the interesting aspects of human society. Now, I think, you know, I don't think that's all of it. I, I think you, you, one doesn't want to say that's, I, I don't want to be one of those people who say human be, you know, you have people who say the human being is a rational animal. You have John Paul who basically is saying the human being is a giving animal. I don't want to say the human being is a promising animal. I think all of these are aspects of, important aspects of human beings. Um, but they are all, but, it, but the promising one is very important. And so through a commitment, human beings can unite for life. And this commitment would involve a commitment to being united as one flesh on reasonable occasions with this person and with no other persons while both are alive. And this makes the, the union a personal union of one flesh until death doth part. So I've briefly sketched an approach to sexual ethics that starts with general considerations about love and then concludes to an understanding of specifically romantic love as a love that seeks a real union of two persons as one organism in a loving, lifelong commitment through a personally integrated reproductive striving. Let me read that again. A real union of two persons as one organism in a loving, lifelong commitment through a personally integrated reproductive striving. It follows from the analysis that various sexual acts other than intercourse, whether because they're of the wrong sort or because they lack the interpersonal dimensions of commitment and integration, are not what romantic love yearns for. I haven't argued here that those things are wrong. That would take more work, and I tried to do that in my One Body book. I'm just trying to offer a basic framework for sexual ethics, a framework that takes seriously the idea that romantic love is a form of love defined by a particular kind of union. But I also want to offer this framework as a model, uh, not just for sexual ethics, but for, for the way that you can use an ethics of love to arrive at specific moral conclusions. You start with the general concept of love, then you specify the particular forms of love that are relevant to a given case, and finally you analyze these forms. I mean, it would be really interesting to see what would you get out of just war theory if you tried to do this? What, is the relevant for, what are the relevant forms of love for a just war theory? Love of enemy, love of neighbor, love, uh, love of uh, authorities for those that they are to serve under them, and then analyze what follows from these forms of love. An initiative of Franciscan University of Steubenville. Faithandreason.com Be transformed by the renewal of your mind.